Welcome to Happy Times and Places, in which I, Toby Haydoke, watch a Doctor Who story chosen by a friend of mine, and I have to commentate along, pick out some salient facts, and try to guess what my special guest's favourite things about each episode are, whilst all the time accentuating the positive. Hello there, and um, hello to all of you viewing at home. No, maybe that's the wrong story. Hello, my name is Jeremy Bentham, and Toby's asked me to introduce myself. Well, I'm one of the, what Doctor Who magazine likes to call, one of the last of the few who are actually still around to watch the original stories of Doctor Who from the very beginning. I was a child in the 60s, and in the 1970s, I was privileged to become part of the Doctor Who Appreciation Society when it was first formed one of the first networks to actually start bringing fans together, which it uh, has done successfully ever since. In uh, 1979, I was um, catapulted from the glass into Doctor Who magazine when uh, it was still called Doctor Who Weekly, and Deskin asked me to become the principal writer and contributing uh, editor for that publication, something I was very pleased to do for at least two or three years. Um, by that point, I'd actually started my own research project, uh, for Cybermark Services called Doctor Who and Adventure in Space and Time, which later mutated into becoming Doctor Who and Vision, one of the first attempts to try and document, story by story, all of the serials of Doctor Who in what is now known as its classic era. In between that time, yes, I've written a few books, contributed to what seems like an awful lot of videos and projects, and for my films, I'm still contacted by people, mostly these days about people that want to know a little bit more about the Doctor Who's early days which is why I'm very pleased to nominate as my Doctor Who story for Toby's uh, Enterprise, Marco Polo. Why have I chosen Marco Polo? Well, partly I think to redress the balance between uh, all the people who are probably great fans of the new series and try and level up the balance a little bit more perhaps in favour of the classic series and importantly those series which we can no longer watch because they no longer exist in the archives and Marco Polo is the earliest example of that, and for me, it's a very, very special story. It's my Jekyll and Hyde story in a way, or perhaps Hyde and Jekyll would be another way of looking at it, because when I first watched it as a child, I was very much impatient with it, and it wasn't top of my list. Why? Well, because those guys weren't in it. I was one of the original Doctor Who Dalek fans, and by the time we were getting to Marco Polo, I was already making little model Daleks out of corks and pins and anything that I could possibly lay on my hands on to actually construct a Dalek. So suddenly finding yourself confronted by a seven-part story that was historical in nature at the time didn't seem like a great advance. If anything, you were going back to Sunday serial days. Now, if we go forward a few more years to the 1980s, this was when, as a member of the Appreciation Society, and just getting my toe in the water with Marvel Comics, I was first allowed access to the BBC's wonderful script library that was in Brentford at that time. Uh, not in Brentford, it was in Western Avenue in those days. And that's where I first came across the script for Marco Polo. And it really was an absolute journey of discovery because, for whatever reason, when I was at the script library that day, I was not researching Marco Polo, I was looking up something else totally different. But I saw the folder on the shelf, picked it out, and picked out the seven wonderful scripts of this story, and just started reading. I realised halfway through I'd just about read the entire script, 
had wasted probably a considerable amount of the time for which I was ostensibly there, but realised I'd become absolutely mesmerised by the storyline that Marco Polo unfolds over a course of, gosh, 3,000 miles in terms of the distance travelled in that serial and the six months plus it takes the travellers their time to go from the plains of Pamir to the Khan's palace at Peking. And I was absolutely enraptured. Even more so when a few years later, Mark Ayres did his uh, superb work in restoring uh, the tape recordings originally made by Richard Landon and um, David Holman, I think. David Holman, yes, David Holman. And bringing those up to light and getting them issued as part of the BBC's audio collection. So for the first time, we could actually sit down and in audio only, enjoy this superb seven part story, which is unique for so many reasons, which I'll be outlining, I hope later on, with Tony, Toby's collaboration. So if you've got an opportunity, for heaven's sakes, either stream this or dig this out of your library, switch the lights down low, crank the volume up, and prepare to involve yourself in one of Doctor Who's most spectacular adventure. An adventure which I can only describe as a magnificent chess game which runs its course through parts one to seven. So without further ado, Toby, it's back over to you mate. Well hello everybody and yikes! <laughs> I've got to do seven missing episodes of Doctor Who. So a story I will admit I don't know as well as as most I would think how many times have I seen this I think I've heard the soundtrack gosh maybe just the once and I've watched a reconstruction twice so uh, a Doctor Who story of I've I've probably experienced only three times uh and I've got a feeling the episode seven I listened to the episode seven I have of the BBC CD soundtrack was a bit jumpy on episode seven. So, yeah, I'm going to be a bit jumpy for the next seven episodes because this is not a story I know especially well. It wasn't one of the ones I did have a few soundtracks in the days when you had to get them on cassette and uh, it sounded like they'd been recorded underwater uh, with all of the actors wearing socks uh, and a hundred miles away <laughs> and um, drowning um, but I didn't get Marco Polo I was after I got the I was after the Troutons uh, that's what I was after when I was uh, a, a youngster um, who briefly dallied with getting the, the soundtracks um, but they were quite a hard listen and they weren't you know I'm talking about before the time that they they had narration on um, although I you know, I have some sympathy with people who say, I shouldn't have narration on. You should just be able to work out what's going on. You think, yeah, you 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 are a purist and also someone who has no commercial sense whatsoever. Um, because, uh, you know, yeah, it is, it is, they are television soundtracks. They are not designed to be consumed without some form of assistance. Uh, in the case of, you know, t television, in the case of episodes of television, the assistance was all the things you could see that you no longer can. But what a miracle that from 14 weeks into uh, Doctor Who's existence, we have episodes that no longer exist. And yet somebody even then was recording them so that we have the soundtracks. That is nothing short of a miracle. We have the soundtrack 
of every and of course when most people talk about the soundtrack to a movie they mean the score that's recorded separately and added on and that's why you listen to movie soundtracks don't think i think some people don't quite realize that when we say we listen to the soundtrack maybe we actually listen to an audio version of a thing we don't have pictures for um but isn't that a miracle but that means um we have um yeah these uh these pictureless and Marco Polo of course weirdly uh, was one of those ones before I knew that, that it was missing you know I, I I felt it was a story I knew quite well because there were loads of photos of it so like oh gosh there's there's all hang on it doesn't exist because it seemed odd I mean of course there's no correlation to, between photos taken on the studio floor you know when it was being made and you know the destruction of tape several years later but it seemed odd to have something that we had so much of that we didn't have um Anyway, and I've just realised I've not, I've probably not downloaded uh, Jeremy Bentham, who you have already heard uh, this episode, um, who is, you know, a, uh, a legend of fandom. His book, Doctor Who the Early Years, was an early Christmas present. I say it was an early Christmas present for me. Well, it was. It was a Christmas present for me in my younger days. And also christmas present that my mum had got when we'd visited longleat probably in about i don't know i'm guessing you know the august september but and there was a doctor who shop there and you know it was the days where you had to go to specific shop for this for things so i think she'd stocked up for christmas on that visit uh when my back was turned and uh, had hidden various things including my main present which was doctor who the early years in a cupboard and I found it and uh, I'm not a spoilers person but I would occasionally go and have a little flick and I would you know I wouldn't I wouldn't, didn't read any of the text but I looked at some of the pictures and read the cast lists um those were the things I allowed myself but yeah I I, I cheated and uh, and had sneak previews of that present um but I admire my own restraint um and so Jeremy is uh, uh, is a is a legendary figure and I had the pleasure of meeting him relatively relatively recently um he I mean it's 10 years ago now but uh, seeing as I encountered quite a few who people pr- prior to that Jeremy very humbly um sort of sent me an email going oh, I'm 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 involved with Dr. Fender I know who you are you're a legend and a learned man uh and you know one of the one of the pioneers of Doctor Who fandom and Doctor Who magazine and Doctor Who research. And I have a great respect for such people. And uh, as Ian McLachlan proved, the people that were there at the time are indeed very, very interesting uh, contributors to Doctor Who history. And I, I was worried about doing the Dalek Master Plan, which has been one of the podcasts I've done that has had the best feedback. And that is due in no small part to uh, such a fantastic guest and Ian, who was there at the time, giving his insights from the time. So you've heard Jeremy's introduction, and uh, it's probably clear what uh, a fascinating uh, and intelligent fellow he is. So he's going to provide us with uh, food for thought. Um, and, uh, and, you know, perspective from the time. Whereas I am going to... <laughs> improvise my way through i'm looking at this episode one has a running time of 24 minutes and 13 seconds so that's quite a long one as well uh, <laughs> a story that i've seen very infrequently that doesn't exist and my goodness let's see what happens so i will be watching the loose canon reconstruction 
on 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 a little tablet here so it's with uh, fear that i embark upon an epic journey where's marco polo to narrate it when you need him uh and we're gonna begin on the roof of the world and we're going to press play in three two one um, I have just realised I could have said quite a lot of that <laughs> during the episode, but uh, I'm nothing if not really bloody stupid. So anyway, this is Doctor Who. These, this is the first missing episode of Doctor Who, um, and what a shame! I, 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 I mean, we, you know, we we are always very tempted to, you know, view the. The, the past the lost past with the uh, rose-tinted spectacles but certainly everybody that worked on Marco Polo seems to adore it I know that Waris Hussain who I've had the pleasure of speaking to and meeting on several occasions uh is you know is desperately unhappy that Marco Polo is missing and genuinely thinks it was you know a, a, a superior quality piece of work um I mean, I, I am predisposed to like the historicals anyway. I, I question myself as to this because I like Doctor Who because it's a, an exciting sci-fi adventure and it wasn't an historical series when I grew up watching it and I don't remember being particularly blown away by Black Orchid, you know. Um, and and I, I, remember, I remember doing... Um, well, we'll, no, we'll talk about that maybe later. Uh, these, these, some of these scenes are quite familiar because uh, Doctor Who, the 20th anniversary Radio Time special, uh, had a big picture, I think, of the four of them outside the TARDIS uh, in in this episode. Uh, and there's that picture, isn't there, of, of Hartnell by the TARDIS door um, that was in Doctor Who's celebration. And there's this picture of Ian and Barbara that I'm looking at right now with him with his arm around her. Around the outside the TARDIS, so there's lots of lots of beautiful, gorgeous pictures, many of them in full colour, that really capture the grandeur, and, but of course make the the story look actually more impressive than it will have done in black and white. Bizarrely, now I love black and white, and I love the atmosphere of black and white, um, but but there's so much of what we that of what makes uh, Marco Polo so gorgeous is that we have these lovely full colour pictures. Uh, and and the Barry Newbury, the designer, and, uh, uh, and and all of the costumes that they have as well are fabulous. Uh, I love Hartnell in these opening scenes. He's really he's really grumpy. He's quite. I remember he's quite. Um, I mean the 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 doctor the, the, the doctor changes actually from 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 story to story, and um, particularly in this uh, in these early days. Oh, there's that picture of Susan being cold and the doctor. Being, but he's really quite grumpy and slightly very annoyed and irascible quite often people write up the Hartnell doctor or, or certainly people that worked at the time say oh yes uh, 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 he, he was an irascible doctor I think Hartnell was quite an irascible fellow um, actually his doctor isn't always that irascible he's sometimes very lovely and dotty and uh, uh, but yeah no he does get scallop but he's but he's genuinely irascible in this first episode and I actually really like it because it's actually quite funny because he's so He's so cross and so irritated by the situation. Uh, but I'm finding it quite refreshing. Um, and I've watched a lot of early Doctor recently because, of course, I'm doing I'm doing the Too Much Information podcasts. And I've just I've just watched Edge of Destruction 
uh, or inside the spaceship, whatever you want to call it, about you know about twelve times. Um, but this is this is you know this is a wonderfully tr- traditional start. We 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 start in a hostile environment, and environment is very important uh, to, to to early Doctor Who's. I think we're quite blasé about space and time travel uh, now, whereas then just the very fact that you were being taken to different locales meant that there was danger within the very environment itself. This is cold, they get hot later on and they run out of water. Um, and, and the idea of being separated from the TARDIS and all of that stuff is built into the jeopardy, um, you know, which which writers like Terry Nation sort of carry on when you think of episode one of Planet of the Daleks, where, you know, the danger is basically we've landed in a place that's where, where the environment itself is very hostile. And it's like another, it's, it's like a sort of another addition to the, to the, to the sort of register of difficulties, uh, uh, the, the the lexicon of threats, if you like. Um, but yes, the historicals. I I I like them, but do I like them because one we don't do them anymore, and two because they're old and largely lost, uh, and. You know, would I, if if we had the whole of Doctor Who in existence, would I be, you know, w- would I be rushing to watch Marco Polo and the Massacre and the Mythmakers, three stories I say would be very high on my list of stories I'd like to find? But I can do that, can't I? It's, it's all academic. It's not going to affect anything. Do I like the fact that I think I like the historicals? Does that make me feel that I'm clever and I like the lyrical, philosophical stories? because there's something somehow dirty about just liking stuff that's sci-fi jeopardy. I'm, I, you know, I, I worry about my own... <laughs> it's really weird, these mental gymnastics that we do. It's all right for me to like Marco Polo, and yet I worry that I only like Marco Polo because of how it makes me feel about how I feel about myself and the things I like. But is that... I don't know if that's not because... Uh, well, I, you know, I know my mind is a slightly topsy-turvy place, but it seems, it seems a real unnecessary waste of energy. I could just go, I like Marco Polo. <laughs> and I think I do. I love uh, his Darren Nesbitt as Tigana. And this is a really interesting piece of casting because if you, if you know Nesbitt's work, you know, he's, he's usually a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, smooth kind of... I mean, I love his turn. He's a brilliant number two in... Uh, it's your funeral, which is a Marco Polo um, uh, uh, reunion because it, it, the guest stars are Darren Nesbitt, Mark Eden and Martin Miller, um, who turns up as Kubla Khan later. And here's Mark Eden, who used to live um, just up the road from here, where I am now, and actually used to live even closer to where I used to live when uh, when I lived for a bit in a, in a flat in town. Uh, I had the pleasure of going to... Um, Mark's house a couple shortly before he died because we recorded uh, uh, a, a little interview for the Quatermass in the Pit DVD Blu-ray. Um, but I'd already um, corresponded with with Mark Eden several years previously, and he he actually sent me his contract for Quatermass in the Pit because it was his first telly, and he'd hung on to it. Uh, and he sent me a few memories about Quatermass and the Pit. I thought it was a bit... I didn't ask him about Doctor Who in the letter because I was writing to him about Quatermass and other people interviewed him about Doctor Who anyway. He was always very, very generous with his with his time, with his interviews. Uh, 
uh, and he died a couple of years ago now, early early last year, um, and was also the the husband of a. Uh, of uh, Sue Nichols, who plays Audrey in Coronation Street. Uh, and he himself, of course, became famous for being Alan Bradley, a terrible villain in Coronation Street. Um, but at this time, and he's great casting, he's the, the dashing hero of uh, Marco Polo. Um, and, I, and I remember seeing his picture in the, in, in the paper when he was, you know, he was in Coronation Street at that time and being... Uh, sort of oh wow so you know he's he's still going and he's in Coronation Street and he was Marco Polo, um, but but Darren Nesbitt, uh, I didn't see his stuff till later so I thought of him as quite a sort of, um, you know burly, you know dark haired actor and he's not he's a sort of very sixties very kind of sixties energy and blonde uh, those blonde sort of tousled docks he has. Uh, in in the prisoner, and he's the Nazi, is he's one of the 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 the, the, the German in uh, well, there's many Germans, but a key German in uh, uh, where eagles dare, um, and he also directed a film called The Amorous Milkman. Uh, <laughs> um, when I think uh, he thought there was money in them, their six comedies, um, but I think that I think the 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 bubble was about to burst. The udder, the udder was about to, to to burst, and the the milk went everywhere. No, that's not a it's not a metaphor. I want to continue with. If we're talking about saucy comedies. Anyway, look at this brilliant uh, set design. I, I'm I'm struck with this because we think of it as being an an epic, and actually it's feeling pretty big. But uh, uh, there's only as many speaking cast in this episode as there are. In, uh, in 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 the, the the cave people episodes, which I don't think of being as particularly populous, you know, you've got you've got the the goody caveman and the baddie caveman and the old man caveman and the old woman caveman and the other woman cave caveman, and that's it. You know, you you think of it being a quite a I think of it being quite a sparse population, even though there's lots of sort of cave people extras. Um, but I always think of Marco Polo because it has actually got a quite a long cast list, and we we do meet more characters later. But in this episode, there's Marco Polo, Tigana, uh, Pincho, and uh, as we will see at the end of the episode, the wonderful credit you desperate for it on your CV, Man at Lop, uh, played by Leslie Bates, who we will discuss uh, in about fourteen minutes' time. Um, Xenia Merton, I think, is absolutely beautiful, uh, and she has. Uh, the distinction of having of, of a certain number of years uh, between Doctor Who universe appearances. She sadly never returned to the show, but she is the registrar in uh, the Sarah Jane Adventures. Um, is it the wedding of Sarah Jane Smith, the one that David Tennant comes back in? Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, so that's nice that she she played quite a lot of sort of registrars and receptionists. And, uh, she, I remember her turning up in Casualty, I think, as a hotel receptionist. And I'm sure, I'm sure she did something else as a as a as a registrar, uh, but um, I never had the pleasure. I know her agent a bit, Barry Langford, um, and and I did try to interview her for a, a piece I was planning for Doctor Who magazine that I never ended up doing, and then did get done relatively recently uh, when Marco Polo was released on vinyl. But I'd put I I'd been charged with 
well, you see, I, I, I get different versions of this. I've been asked, oh, we, we might be doing a new way of doing, instead of doing Doctor Who archives, we do Doctor Who in their own words, and you interview people from a particular story, and, you know, we, we sort of break the story down and get quotes from the people. Do, do you fancy having a go with Marco Polo? So I did. I got in touch with uh, uh, a few people. And then it just sort of went quiet and never happened. And, and, and then very recently, Peter Weir said, did you ever, did you do anything with those interviews? And I went, well, no, I've got, I've got them here. Um, and he said, oh, can we, can we run them? Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of people went, oh, this says these interviews are from 10 years ago. Is that because Marco Polo was supposed to be coming back and you're preparing an article? Now, if that was the case, I've forgotten. But I don't think it was. I think I thought I was doing this new this new way of doing things. Uh, but but with people saying, but it was around that time when there were rumours that it was going to be Marco Polo and Enemy of the World and Web of Fear. I'm sure that was, I think that was, or Marco Polo was going to come back after Web of Fear, Enemy of the World. It was certainly in the air that Marco Polo definitely existed to the extent that if it had turned up, it would have been slightly disappointing because we were all expecting that it already existed anyway. And now, of course, I'm watching this. I go, I would kill to see this. It's really, it's a really nice production. Um, but... Uh, and and actually, I'm talking about the sort of small number of cast, but there's there's a the, there's there's quite a few extras there dressed in the the, the Mongol uniforms, uh, uh, and this this set doesn't seem too small. The one the one on the roof of the world, which gives us a nice sense of scale, and isn't that a lovely title as well? Um, I know I know the roof of the world is is you know it's not that's not a that's not phraseology unique to doctor who this place is known as the roof of the world but i still think it's it's a lovely sort of poetic kind of title that appeals to me much more than you know mysterious one line titles you know or, or you know the terranation the return the expedition all of all of that i think there's something very poetic about the roof and indeed the singing sands wall of lies i think yeah i, I love all of these titles um uh, and and what I like about this story actually is that it's it's an exercise in trust. You know that Marco Polo is is a good guy, and he doesn't actually do anything bad to the travellers. But the travellers do kind of lie to him on occasion, and then he sort of quite reasonably says, "Well, if you lie to me, how can I trust you?" And it's and it's it's like a sort of series of uneasy alliances um uh, between between sort of good people i mean tigana's yeah tigana's the obvious bad guy if you've i don't know if you've seen kieran hodgson who i would urge you to follow on uh twitter he he, he he's for a while he did sort of condensed versions of doctor who stories um that were really really good but i think he only got as far as Marco Polo, maybe Keys and Marinus as well and he's done the crown and various other things but he's one on the crown is superb um but but here's one of this is you, you know where he he plays all the different people and he's a very good mimic, um, but his um, but his sort of spoof of Tigana is yes I'm very trustworthy I'm not a bad guy at all and 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 I I do like the fact that um, Darren Nesbitt goes for sort of purred villainy and it's certainly better than trying to attempt any sort of accent because there's no getting over the fact that you know there's an uneasiness for a modern viewer about a, 
a European actor, especially, I mean, especially, as I say, blonde-haired, blue-eyed uh, Darren Nesbitt, although actually the, the makeup and the, if it, is it, I think it's a wig, but if it's his hair, it's been darkened, um, is, is actually very good, the dark beard, the dark hair. Um, but, you know, obviously we have uneasiness, rightly so, about, um, uh, about uh, you know, Caucasian actors um passing themselves off as different ethnicities but whilst acknowledging that uneasiness i, I you know i'm, I'm also not going to waste time berating the past for doing what was uh, what was uh, the, the methodology of the time and i would uh, and what i always say is you know i would challenge anyone now who thinks it's you know who goes well it's terrible we wouldn't do it now no we wouldn't do it now but if you worked at the bbc in 1964 and they said we want darren nesbitt as tigana you wouldn't stand up and go no we need to find an actor of the correct ethnicity because you wouldn't have done because the uh the landscape was very different and priorities were very different uh, and attitudes were were very different and just because you're from now that doesn't make you better because you're attitudes and experiences been shaped by a culmination of the passage of time to get us where we are now um but i also don't think there's anything wrong with going god we find that as a modern audience we find that quite uneasy that's fine to say as well you know and i uh, uh, and and you know i equally reject people say well it's just a case of getting the, the right person for the job well now the right person for the job is not a white actor with makeup on uh, uh, it, it just really isn't and if if you if you can't find an actor of the correct uh, ethnicity to play such parts now then i i i i'm i'm not sure what your classification for the right person for the job is so it's you know it's i think it's fair enough to acknowledge that it's problematic but also you know uh w without you know without being too lofty about uh, ourselves in the process uh, a series a couple of wonderful hats here that ian and barbara have uh, i mean they're both wearing sort of lampshades <laughs> they are glorious hats aren't they i think these might be two of the best hats in the whole of doctor who and doctor who has some uh hot hat action a lot of the time i, I haven't seen some of these photographs this uh this uh um reconstruction has some beautiful beautiful photos and again it feels populous and it sounds populous um uh yen yang is played by an actor called oh aikida um who who isn't credited on screen but is credited on some cast lists um but he doesn't say anything so i don't think he was credited on screen no um so yeah there's still the the uh, Mark Eden, Darren Nesbitt, and in ep for episode one, the Radio Times said, and introducing Xenia Mert Merton. Uh, but she doesn't get that credit on any of the, the, the rest of the episodes. But it's nice that she gets a nice credit for um, part one. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a lovely part, actually. And it's nice, it's nice that Susan has a sort of mate that she can get to be sort of fun and playful and, and sort of on a level with, because Susan's quite often treated as a child and talked down to it's 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 nice that a lot of her scenes she's she's with somebody who's a sort of equal in terms of age although obviously now we would say well if susan's a time lord she's much much older but but that they feel like you know they can they can bat off each other as as mates and i like that dynamic um this as i say i was i was going to be surprised at how small scale 
this was in terms of the number of speaking characters, but but actually the the, the supporting non-speaking supporting roles actually feel like they're a they're a part of the drama um because of course this is not only a story that takes place on an epic scale time-wise you know um marco polo's you know traveling troop was a was an awful lot of people um and this i said yes this does feel i was i thought i was going to come out of this and go actually this 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 feels a bit smaller than we might expect because we think of Marco Polo because it's seven parts and because it's this epic journey and because it's got, you know, the maps, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, but I, I love the little conceit of, uh, of Marco Polo narrating uh, that, that gives the story a unique feel. Um, and in the draft scripts, it was the travellers that actually did uh, the narration Um Certainly the Doctor, but I think the others got got a shot as well. But it was, I think it was Hussein, Warris Hussein, that said, "No, let's let's get, have Marco narrating it." And I love that. I think that's terribly sweet, and uh, and it gives Marco, you know, his own, the, you know, his own special input into the story that's named after him. Although on much of the paperwork, it is called a journey to Cathay. Um, uh, and here we are. Yes. Yeah, so here's here's a lovely piece of uh, you know the drama. And this this does seem very real. I, I, I it would seem to me quite boring now, um, if 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 a whole drive of part of the story was that the TARDIS was being taken off the Doctor because the TARDIS we now take for granted. The TARDIS is now uh, a constant within the show, and it would seem like a bit of a cheat. I think if the yeah it's all right in the Satan pit for it to fall down and we don't really do we, we go oh, okay they've got to have the adventure now but it'll pop up at the end but here because it's uh early in the show and because you know the the whole sort of conceit and drive of the show is that, that is that these two school teachers are stranded away from their time and that is part of you know the, the whole jeopardy of the whole thing is that their their connection to their their home time and space is you know hanging by a thread as it were the the idea that the TARDIS may be taken off the travellers seems to have so much more weight and import here at the dawn of the show than it than it would now, uh, and I, I I love that I love that you can you can go back to different times in the show where things that work perfectly well then that wouldn't work now or would work differently now, um, and it, and it's like looking at the show through new eyes. It's you're going well of course this this seems like a a, 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 you know, a, a, this is a perfectly good piece of writing, and of course, Mar we like Marco. Marco's not doing anything particularly unpleasant, as far as Marco's concerned. They'll be able to make another ship if they made this thing. They'll be able to do it again. I'm not sure what I make of the Doctor's laughing. The Doctor is really weird in this episode, and here he has this big laugh. But this is, you know, this is the Doctor being sort of unpredictable and having been waspish and sort of vicious and terse and irate for the whole thing and quite sort of cross um uh, he, he's totally unpredictable here um and he's he's laughing away like an absolute loon it has to be said but the punchline is he hasn't got a clue what he's going to do is you know the laughter is to cover up the fact that that they're gonna they're gonna lose the tardis which now here's leslie bates as man at lop and he has one line um uh, and he's been at the end of an episode before because he is at the end of episode one. He is the shadow of Cal. Uh, 
who appears across the landscape uh, on that model shot of the TARDIS. That is Leslie Bates. And the reason he's the shadow is so that they didn't have to play Jeremy Young, who plays Cal, or who hadn't been cast then anyway, I don't think. Um, but you wouldn't do that anyway. You wouldn't, you wouldn't cast, you wouldn't get the actor playing the part. You wouldn't pay him for the episode before to only see his shadow. With this, Leslie Bates plays Man at Lop and gets a credit because he has one line. But Man at Lop doesn't have a line next week. And so Leslie Bates is replaced by an extra next week so that's a nice that's a nice piece of symmetry his first is it sort of bookends uh from 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 the first episode uh where yeah leslie bates was there standing in for someone else and then on his only speaking contribution to doctor who and he he, he turns up in the green death i mean he's 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 in the show for the first three first couple of decades um but this is his only credit as man at lop um uh, and yeah, somebody has to replace him next week so that he doesn't have to get paid for two episodes or get a retainer or whatever, whatever else. Uh, that's that's one of those nice little pieces of um, cast list symmetry that is only of interest to me, but I don't care. I've just given you 24 minutes on a missing episode of Doctor Who. Well, I did get distracted quite a lot. There's quite a lot to say about that that I I didn't say, but I I, I th- yeah I think the the fact that the TARDIS you know being separated from the TARDIS is a key piece of the jeopardy I think is very important and I also like the fact that it's being taken away from them not by a baddie but by somebody who has his own very plausible and decent reasons for doing what he's doing uh and and has his own you know dilemma and has his own difficulties to overcome and and I love that dynamic actually that lasts the whole story between Ian and Polo of of them wanting to be straight with each other but for expediency not always being straight with each other and therefore then using the fact that they're not always straight with each other as a reason to go well hang on you lied to me so I, I like all of that that's much more interesting than it just being goodies and baddies or or or, or, or just you know unambiguous lying or, or whatever um I I think that I think the character dynamics are, are rather lovely um uh, and yes, talking about Tigana, I got waylaid by the by the uh, the you know the, the aspect of the ethnicity of the actor. But uh, 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 I I think Darren Nesbitt doing the sort of underplayed purred villainy is better than, as we discover with some other actors later, you know, putting on and certainly with Peter Laird as Chang in the Wheel in Space, uh, a, an attempt to sort of do some sort of accent, which. Uh, um, has has uh, you, you know is at best awkward and at worst offensive so i think in terms of as a as a modern viewer or listener what Darren Nesbitt does i think is a, is a good call and it makes for a very effective character and he is uh, you know he's a very subtly menacing presence it's subtle as in low key as in low played that I, I don't think the villain is that subtle it's pretty obvious he's the bad guy um, but um, but that's okay that's okay um it's it's still a good performance um so what i think for episode one because i think this is going to be chosen at some point so i may as well choose it for episode one because it's the it's the first time we experience it um i have to choose the fact that the story is narrated by marco polo and that he has a map and we have the plotting of his journey i love that yes please so that is my choice for episode one what is J. Jeremy Bentham's choice for episode one of Marco Polo? The roof of the world, it says, over to 
J. Jeremy Bentham. For the high point of the roof of the world, I've chosen a subject not usually discussed much on uh, podcasts and even in magazines, and that's Doctor Who's use of lighting, and particularly its lighting in early stories like Marco Polo, which was quite remarkable considering it was filmed in such an old studio. And remember, this wasn't sort of Nightmare of Eden game show flood lighting we're talking about here. We're talking about very intricate lighting that made the very best of the sets they had and the very best of the facilities that were available to them at the time. I think nowhere illustrates this more so than episodes one and two, where you start off with very, very cold, hard contrast lighting for the plane of Pamir. And watching as an audience, yes, you, you get wrapped up in the fact that it's supposed to be very, very cold environments, which then transitions as we go on in the episode to softer, warmer contrast lighting for the sets and the scenes that take place inside Marco Polo's tent. All of this, well, a lot of it, I suspect, was down to the lighting supervisor, a chap called John Trees, I believe, on the first few episodes, who apparently uh, suffered so much at the hands of the dictates of trying to make this episode, these episodes so memorable that he asked to be swapped out of Marco Polo later on because they were going to be so difficult to light, and I think he was replaced by the ever-redoubtable Howard King. If you want proof of how a tiny little studio can be made to look enormous, look at episode two, and particularly if you've got the Singing Sands telesnaps available, and look at the shot where Susan and Ping Cho are watching Tigana leaving the tent to go out into the Gobi Desert. It's absolutely spotlit with tiny little circles of light, larger circles nearer to the actresses, smaller circles further away to give you that false perspective sense of depth. It's an amazing way of achieving an epic look to a very, very tiny studio indeed. So guys, please enjoy. Ah, uh, very good. Um, he's going to be good, isn't he? Um, I mean, you can, you know, the fact that he can extemporise about the lighting of an episode that we can't see, but do so uh, with such great uh, acute observation uh, about the different lo locales and the different lighting states. And and it's true, and that's very interesting because I, again, I think of Marco Polo in terms of, um, you know, the epic grandeur of those sets and the beautiful richness of those those costumes, which, of course, you wouldn't see in the final episodes, but he's quite right what you can discern, and especially as we have since had access to the telesnaps, which when I was a time tot, we did not. Uh, we had all those design pictures, which, again, give a slightly false impression of the story in a way. And then suddenly, and this is what I love about the history of Doctor Who coming together, is that for years we didn't have the telesnaps of Marco Polo because we'd got the telesnaps from a, a big chunks of uh, Doctor Who, but not uh, from season one. But that's OK, because it meant there was only nine episodes you know, from that season that we'd need telesnaps from. And so that's not a great loss, but it would still be nice to have them. And then, lo and behold, Warris Hussain's got his six episodes, the telesnaps, in his attic. So, you know, of all the stories that we needed the telesnaps from uh, of season one, well, actually, of those nine episodes, um, we've, we've, you know, a, a director who we had access to 
who hadn't mentioned it for years and years and years or had forgotten or whatever, but for whatever reason, because we'd been in touch with him, uh, suddenly went, oh, yeah, I think I've got, look, these. And then suddenly another little piece of Doctor Who's visual jigsaw comes together. I love that fact. And I love the fact that, you know, this this archaeology element means we we piece it together from different sources. So, yeah, we, we, were, we had an embarrassment of riches with photos, but then we get the telesnaps that actually show us what it looked like on screen. And I think they, they do, that does add an, an extra dimension to what the story would have looked like and i think it does give a set that it does give a sense of the scale of uh, as i say how populous the episode is despite the shortness of the cast list and of those different sets and i think that plane of pamir set the roof of the world set is is very key obviously that little bit that little hillock that they go over just before they get uh, captured is just you can imagine it just being a tiny little uh, set in the corner of the studio and some of the other sets are a little bit bigger and those are all pieced together to make the episode and that's some of the the, the the genius of uh, you know putting Doctor Who together as well in you know the the confines of Lime's Grove Studio D. John Triese was indeed the the lighting director and indeed he did uh, ask to be um, removed from Marco Polo uh, uh, because uh, he, yeah it was a tricky job to light but actually I think the I think that's a that's a great choice of. Uh, 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 of Jeremy, um, I think he'll choose Mark Eden narrating the story at some point. But because I've chosen it for this episode, that means I have it in the bank. So that means I do get a point if he chooses it in, say, episode five or as his bonus. Of course, what I lose out on then is um, uh, obviously whatever I choose for episode five, he won't be choosing because he's choosing, you know, uh, Mark Eden, Marco Polo, or whatever, or his bonus or whatever. So whilst I get a point, I still sort of lose a point. But, but nonetheless, that's that's the mechanics for anyone who really cares about the rules of this game, which I'm sure nobody actually does. If you are keeping a tally, don't. I'm going to lose. I always lose, but it's just occasionally nice when I get a little, a little highlight along the way. Uh, a little drop of water in a desert uh, of failure, uh, which will aptly... Uh, bring us to the next episode of Marco Polo. So I hope you can join me for that as we uh, listen to the tune that is played by the Singing Sands. And uh, let's see what uh, lyrics J. Jeremy Bentham, Doctor Who historian extraordinaire, brings to that. But in the meantime, this is going to be an epic old journey, but uh, I, I hope you enjoy joining me on it because these are the stories that, uh, you know, they're, they're so near and yet so far. Uh, so I look forward to uh, uh, drawing the next line on the map along with you uh, in the very next episode of Happy Times and Places. But until then, goodbye for now. Thank you so much for listening to Happy Times and Places, which is presented by me, Toby Haydock, and my special guest, J. Jeremy Bentham, who was doing his stuff in vision behind a chess set in front of a Dalek. Oh, and with such class, I'm so grateful to him. He's far too erudite to be on Facebook or social media of any kind. So buy Doctor Who, The Early Years. What a wonderful book it is. I'm grateful to Jeremy and to the many patrons who make this podcast possible. And they include Ruben Herfindahl, Stephen Moffat, David Trainier, Frank Shales, Risto Matti Sarillo, Barry Platt, 
Parker, Graham Knott, Nathan Martin, Rick Moran, Gavin McLean, Ian K. McLachlan, Joe Llewellyn, Ian Key, Chris Hyam, Siobhan Galichon, Jason Gorman, Paul Dunn, Chris Dunford-Kelk, John Deere, Rob Dawson, Peter Crocker, Richard Chalk, Paul Cook, Jenny at Blue Box 99, Nigel Bromley, Tim Arding and David. And the music is by Dave Gates and the artwork by Dylan Patterson. Uh, if you would like to join that list of patrons, you can do so at uh, patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydock, where you get advanced releases, you get special access, you get bonus material, and you get everything, well, six months early at least uh, for Happy Times and Places, and a month or so in advance for the podcasts like Too Much Information and Indefinable Magic. And there are also other special little bits and bobs. You also help to keep these podcasts ad-free. There are no adverts here, and that's the way I would like to keep it. Uh, And one way I justify that to myself for the time that these things take is because people are kind enough to sign up for the monthly subscription, which begins for as little as £3 a month. uh, And you get about uh, three releases a week. So um, it works out as something like 25p per podcast. Um, And less than that if you sign up for a year in one go because you get a 10% discount on the full amount. Um, There are higher tiers, but most things are available at the lowest tier. I know uh, times are tough and the world is going doolally and everything is getting ridiculously expensive. So if you don't want to commit to a monthly thing, but might occasionally fancy chucking something my way, you can go to ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydoke. I will still never take the shilling from the advertisers because it just wouldn't seem right. And it would be odd to break off going, and here's uh, Darren Nesbitt's CV. And by the way, men, are you skinny? Uh, I'm not going to do that. Um, uh, but what costs you nothing? Because I'm not going to keep... Well, I have to keep soliciting for money, but I at least try and do it um, in, in a way that gives you plenty of outs. But uh, what you can do that costs you absolutely nothing is to go to iTunes or anywhere on the internet and give these podcasts five stars. They really help with our our algorithms to make our algorithms look tip-top and uh, very sexy indeed. And I really want sexy algorithms. Uh, And a couple of lines of review. But word of mouth is good. Twitter is good. Social media is good. Forums are good. Just say nice things about these. It it helps to enable them to stand out uh, amongst the very crowded uh, world of Doctor Who podcasting. And it's crowded with some high-quality stuff. So uh, I'm grateful to you. Mostly I'm grateful just to anybody that listens, especially if you've got this far. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydock, ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydock, or, and, or iTunes, Patreon, social media, everywhere. Thank you. Bloody bloody blah, blah. I'm also a comedian. I don't think anyone cares. <laughs> the world of Doctor Who, the world of Doctor Who and comedy. Don't, uh, they don't have the biggest yoke in their Venn diagram, but uh, is it a Venn? No, it's a pie chart, isn't it? Pie chart has a yoke, a Venn diagram. Doesn't matter. Um, there are more people <laughs> who intersect between b- being exact about pie charts and Venn diagrams than there are being comedy and doc two. Anyway, come and see my comedy nights, Excess Malarkey, every Tuesday in Manchester or twitch.tv forward slash Excess Malarkey. I'm feeling a bit bad that I didn't um, 
at the very beginning talk more about uh, Jeremy's introduction, uh, which was, you know, really detailed and really nice. And, um, uh, you know, actually did touch upon, and I didn't really refer to it as much as I could have done. I fa- wasted an opportunity there because he was talking about how he'd not particularly liked the story as a as a youngster and has come to appreciate it as he got older. And that's a really interesting dynamic, isn't it? Um that you say, well, how you know, how do we, how do we assess that then? Uh, should, should we like? How do, well, I love the fact that that you know we constantly evolve, therefore, and what we like about uh, about the show, and that was a story that actually didn't grab him the first time round, uh, but he came to appreciate when he, you know started doing some of his archaeology into the show and I love that about the show is that we can we can return to something sometime later or delve into something sometimes I mean it took I remember watching the faceless ones part one which I'd never seen in full because I'd only seen the cut version and suddenly seeing you know two or three shots of the of the chameleon's hand and suddenly that whole episode which I thought has been a bit dull suddenly with those extra fractions of a second suddenly was a little bit more atmospheric and a little bit more spooky and and, and yeah it's, so we can yeah we can come back to things uh, and suddenly find our experiences have changed or our, our opinions have changed or some new piece of information or exposure to a different aspect of it uh, and I, I love Jeremy's uh, story there, and he's and as I say, he's he's filmed his stuff, and I've not been putting these out on YouTube because they take much much longer to do. I still have, I mean, I still have all the the uh, the, the footage, so you you can tell when I'm hugely unemployed or you know on the scrap heap when I start sh- shoving these out on YouTube like shelling peas, and suddenly it's hours and hours of video because I've got nothing better to do. Um, but uh, yeah, he was great. He's good. He'd buy a chessboard when he did the uh, opening, and then when he chose his thing, there was a an original Dalek behind him. Uh, so he's the real deal, and I'm I'm still slightly in awe of uh, of Jeremy. So uh, I'm I'm really thrilled that he took part. And as I say, Ian K. McLachlan's uh, contribution to the Dalek Master Plan went down very well. So much as you know, I do have people, lovely people, who've contributed uh, the keys of Marinus and the sensor rights and, and other early doctor who's for this one for season one i've i've decided to uh, to be try and be brave uh, and do the one that we can't see that we don't know perhaps as well i don't know maybe you do know it as, as well but i certainly feel it's 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 uh, the one the the exact details of which i know less well even though i you know i know the story and the character and certainly what everything looks like because of all those gorgeous pictures but experiencing the story uh, is is slightly more novel, um, so I hope you enjoyed that. And but I I particularly just wanted to pay tribute again in this uh, sort of post credits bit to uh, to Jeremy's introduction, which I thought was uh, was really top notch and actually got distracted in my own sort of contextualising. Then I didn't refer back to to, to him nearly enough. Um, he's a you know he's a smart guy, um, and I love that Doc Two the Early Years book. So anyway, there's more to come from Jeremy. And if that first episode's contribution is anything to go by, um, I think it's uh, I think it's going to be. Well, he's probably going to be the highlight. Then you'll have guff from me in between. But there we go. I shall try to guff um, as subtly as possible. as is only polite. Uh, <clears throat> ta-ta.